Kokoro is another Japanese term, warrior term, that means heart and mind merged into your actions. And it's very similar to the idea of leading a spiritual life. Welcome to the Zen Stoic Path. On this special segment of our episodes, we go into the Liberated Life interviews. Now, Zen Stoic is a philosophy that aims at creating liberation, but it itself is not liberation. It is merely a vehicle to get there. And just like the Buddha said, a finger pointing at the moon is not the moon. And on these episodes, we go beyond the bounds of Zen Stoic philosophy and interview people from all different walks of life on what it means to live a liberated life. Let's get into the show. So on this episode, I have the great honor and pleasure of interviewing Mark Devine. Mark Devine is an entrepreneur, New York Times bestselling author, philanthropist, and one of the world's top leadership and coaching experts. After a successful 20-year career as a Navy SEAL and SEAL commander, Mark was hired by the Navy to create a nationwide coaching and leadership program for the SEALs. The bold goal of this program was to give the SEALs the best leadership and mental management tools in the world to help them forge unbeatable SEAL teams that achieve mission success in the most stressful, challenging environments on Earth. Divine's leadership and coaching program for the SEALs was so effective that it's now being used outside of the Navy by top CEOs, Fortune 100 companies, U.S. Olympics, elite universities, major league sports franchises, celebrities, and successful individuals from all over the world. Mark Devine is the author of five best-selling books, including his latest book, Staring Down the Wolf, Seven Leadership Commitments That Forge Elite Teams. He hosts a number one ranked podcast on iTunes, Mark Devine's Unbeatable Mind, and he is the founder of the five... And he is the founder of five successful companies, Unbeatable Mind, Seal Fit, NavySeals.com, U.S. CrossFit, and the award-winning Coronado Brewing Company in California. Divine believes that any individual, team, or company can unlock 20x performance with the right tools and training. His company, Unbeatable Mind, helps millions of people achieve their full potential in life and in business through their free training resources and advanced training programs for their leaders, corporate teams, coaching professionals, and high-achieving individuals. As a philanthropist, Mark Devine founded the Courage Foundation to help our wounded veterans who are suffering from post-traumatic stress, PTS. Recently, Devine and his Courage Foundation team set a world record by completing over 22 million burpees to raise awareness, support, and funding for our veteran heroes. All right, so hands down, this has been one of my favorite interviews that I've done. Mark is an amazing human. The dude's got a great sense of humor and also a total badass. And I loved the topics of conversation that we covered in this. We talked about spirituality. We talked about physicality. We talked about how, what it is to have a strong mindset, what it is to be a leader, what it is to really develop a team mindset where you focus on others and relieving their suffering as a means of relieving your own suffering. So in other words, becoming bigger than your own pain. And the episode is packed with tons of insights, quotes, nuggets, all the things that will help you to liberate yourself, not just from a mental or spiritual perspective, but also even a physical one, and how to look at discipline in a totally new way that has really, really, truly helped me, especially since I read Mark's book, 
the unbeatable mind, right? The, the way that Mark talks about discipline totally changed how I looked at it and has become part of my philosophy in it. We also go into topics like psychedelics and emotional and spiritual bypassing, which is a fascinating topic that was probably one of my favorite things about this episode. So without further ado, let's get into the show. I know you're going to love it just as much as I did. So I wanted to actually share something with you before we even got into like actual like podcast episode talk, but I was talking to Scott because I just went through the NLP master practitioner as an assist for him and Joni. And we were having a conversation about Kokoro hmm. and it's something that I'd like to do with him next September when he goes through it. So I would love to hear about what, what it looks like and what can I can expect in terms of like training and whatnot. Cause I, it's something that resonated with me deeply this time around. Sure. Awesome. Right now. Oh yeah. Yeah. Feel free to tell me about it. I know it's, it's quite an undertaking from what I've heard from a few people that have gone through it, but you guys are pretty solid. So you just have to identify your gaps and build a training plan and then attack it. Yeah. It's great to do with a teammate. So you guys can hold each other accountable. You can do some training in person or virtually together. And that's very helpful. The biggest thing for Kokoro is you got to recognize that it's, it's nonstop training for 50 hours. Yeah. So it's really durability and uh, mental resiliency, your ability to focus are the key attributes. And so durability, a lot of rucking and running under load is key. If you're not used to doing that, then you can get injured pretty quickly, pretty easily. Yeah. But triathletes, they don't go make it very long because they, they just don't have the structure to be able to carry bodies and always have something on their back or overhead. That's right. Yeah. Is it, is it, you want to do a lot of weighted rucking. Weighted pull-ups, long crucible style events that last four to six, eight hours here and there. You know what I mean? Not every day. Yeah. Let's kind of work that into the training regimen. It sounds like. Yeah. yeah, cause it, yeah. it sounds like obviously there's an adaptability that you build by running with weight on you or doing pull-ups and dips, in the weighted vest, but it sounds like Kokoro is more something that is a challenge for your mind over and above all else, once you have the physicality for it, it's, it seems like it's really a mental and emotional thing that you got to keep everything. Alive. Yes. And the whole point is to start to get into this experience that mind and body are the same thing. It's, there's no separation between mind and body. So strong mind means you have a strong body. If you think you have a strong mind and your body's weak, you're, you're kidding <laughs> I'm very glad that you said that. Cause I, I agree with that hundred percent. Yeah. Like it is a direct reflection. I've actually been doing sessions lately with, with my clients. So I have a technique that exists in the NLP world, but I've innovated upon it. And I do a session with clients called the pain-free session. And essentially what is, if they come in with a chronic pain, we get rid of that chronic pain within 20 minutes to an hour. And it is, there's nothing physical about it. Like I don't touch them. There's no kind of like plant medicine, there's no acupuncture, nothing like that. It is literally just an alignment of mind and body by exploring the emotions and any conflicts that they've stored in that part of their body. And people walk away with their pain going down to a zero and it's staying that way indefinitely. Yeah. And it's, it's wild to see because, you know, if somebody's supposed to be able to recover from certain things within a few weeks or months and they carry it for decades. Right. Yeah. So yeah. It's trapped, trapped energy. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, the training needs to be that integration of mind, body, and emotions. A lot of times people quit. It's just emotional. Yeah. Stuff comes up. 
just like they say in yoga, stuff will come up because you're working your body in ways and your mind in ways that you're not used to. And so shit comes up. Yeah. And if you don't allow that to go and just notice it, witness it, and you get caught up in that story, then you're screwed, right? Yeah. This is also why the training is really team training and you have a swim buddy and you're coached. And the whole experience is to give you all these opportunities to recognize that you are not your story. And even though we're 50, 50 hours of hardcore training, so first you're going to experience that physically. You have to get through the first fire of six hours, eight hours, 12 hours into it. You're like, holy shit, I've just got to keep going for another 38 hours. And then you just click through that phase and realize, okay, fuck it. I got to stop focusing on this being hard and just figure out how to get through it. So we teach you the big four skills that can keep you in the moment and just focused on just do what you're putting, what's put in front of you. And then because we organize this as team training, it's team, physical, mental obstacles, not like an obstacle race. We put in front of you different challenges and obstacles that you have to overcome, but you can't do it alone. Mm. And we've even had elite athletes, world champion, optical racers and CrossFitters come and try to do it alone and, and could physically push through and do it, but you won't succeed. And we used to issue graduation certificates. We wouldn't give it to those people who just did it alone. Wow. Because the whole point is that this is to take your eyes off yourself and put them on your teammates. So SEAL Fit is built upon the principles of the SEAL teams. They didn't call it the SEAL individuals, right? It's the SEAL teams. Right. <laughs> and so we want you to learn that everything is easier when you take your eyes off yourself and put it on your teams. When you're in service to your teammate, you don't feel the pain because you're trying to take someone else's pain away or trying to support someone else. That's right. Which is probably the next quickest way, or actually it's quickest way to get out of your own suffering is to turn to someone else and to help them with their suffering. Suddenly yours is gone. And it's the same thing you're doing with NLP. You're just taking their mind off of it and putting it somewhere else. And it lets that energy flow and then it's gone. That's right. Yeah. It's really interesting that you say that because I have a principle that I'll coach clients through all the time and I'll adopt it upon myself that when I'm having a problem or a challenge in the moment that I recognize I'm in a story that I'm telling myself, my principle is to become the source of what I seek. If mm -hmm. I seek to have more strength, then I'll become the source of strength, not just for myself, but for others. If I seek to have more love, then I will be loving. If I seek to have more flexibility in my approach, then I will be that source of flexibility again, being the example of that. And I right. feel like that gets us outside of the bounds of our problems. Uh, right. one, one thing that you taught me through your book, The Unbeatable Mind, which I loved, by the way, it, the biggest takeaway I got was discipline is being a disciple of something bigger than you. And that just hit me. It like struck a chord and has been something that I always keep in mind anytime that I find myself wanting to quit or wanting to give up or finding myself telling myself a story of struggle, a challenging situation. I think like, what am I a student of right now? That's bigger than me. Yeah. How did you come upon that philosophy? It's what we were talking about with training. So let's just take training and your relationship with your physical structure, your physicality. The conventional view of discipline is that I've got to force myself to go to the gym three times a week, four times a week, and to do, you know, some hard, something that's hard. Yes. And it's going to suck. And I have to be disciplined to do it, which means I have to just suffer through it. And this is always a losing battle. It's a losing proposition because there's no joy in it. There's no, it's not connected to your overarching purpose or why in life. There's no meaning to it. And so it's just, I'm going to go do hard work. It's going to suck. And I have to be disciplined. And discipline means I have to be mentally tough and, and adhere to this rigid approach to getting things done. 
So it's one dimensional and it never works and it leads to suboptimal results often to a quit or injury. So what I learned is that if I could recontextualize why I train to be discipled to that rationale, that why, then discipline takes on a whole new meaning. And so it's not hard. It becomes just part and parcel of who I am. We don't look at that we have to eat to live, but we don't look at eating as something we have to be disciplined about. Yes. Same thing with sleep. And now it's important to do these well. So you could take the counter argument that, yeah, I have to discipline myself to eat healthy foods and moderate my intake. And I have to discipline myself to, to fast once a month or to intermittent fast. And I have to discipline myself to get eight hours of sleep. But if you recontextualize that and say, no, actually eating, sleeping, and fitness and movement are absolutely essential to me living a whole and healthy life, which will allow me to grow to be the fullest version, most whole version of myself, which will allow me to fulfill my calling or purpose in this lifetime, then I'm a disciple to that. I'm a disciple to living my fullest life and fulfilling my purpose. And because I'm a disciple to that, higher self, higher calling, then it's incumbent upon me to make sure that I eat well, to make sure that I sleep enough, and to make sure that I keep this physical body in this peak condition as possible. Mm. So therefore, it's just who I am is an individual who gets eight hours of sleep a night, who eats well, and who exercises three to five times a week in a very structured manner, meaning in a way that, that is going to be optimal for me as a human being. And I'm going to learn how to do that. I'm probably going to get a coach and I'm going to get a nutritionist and somebody can help me with these things until I master them. And then they just, they just are who I am. And so there's no real hard around that. It's not hard. And it seems right? like an expansion of one's identity. And yeah, identity, I, I like the word extension, so let's stick with that. Contracted identity is when you're focused and you view your, yourself as your body. And so then it's like, hard work to keep your body in shape and it's your body requires a specialized diet or nutrition plan and your body requires this and that and it's all this body obsession because your ego identifies that victor or mark is this body having this experience so you expand out from that and you look at your life as a spiritual being who has this calling this reason for being here both for growth and for fulfilling particular unique service or calling that you have and in order to fulfill that calling and to be that person you have this body yes you are not this body you happen to have this body and this body is created by the mind the body is the mind i call it the body mind there, there really is no separation between mind and body some people think the mind is your head is your brain and the body is everything else now the mind is the body it's throughout the body the brain is certainly an important organ of the mind, but so is your heart and so is your biome, so is your enteric nervous system, so is your skin, so is your entire body is your mind. So mind creates the body, consciousness creates the mind, your spirit is the source of it all. And universal spirit is the source of your spirit, That's your, right. your individual spirit. So once again, recontextualize and expand your concept of self to big S self, spiritual mm -hmm. being having this human existence, to fulfill a growth need and a calling and you need this body to make meaning and to move in the world to do that that's so right take, take care of the body or else you won't be able to grow and you won't be able to fulfill your calling and frankly a lot of people as in spiritual traditions or even communities like arete or even mine unbeatable a lot of people want to skip right to go and collect 200 dollars 
by doing psychedelics or by having these advanced meditation experiences and they leave their body behind by ignoring their emotional development and ignoring their physical development. Therefore, they're really ignoring their intuitive development, which is how our inner guide speaks to us or how our even non-physical guides might speak to us if you believe yes. that. I love that you're bringing this up, by the way. Zen Stoic is a philosophy that is a braiding between Zen Buddhism, Stoicism, and elements of NLP as well. At how the mind actually works in terms of its filters in integrated within these philosophies. And I have recently developed a system that allows the philosophy to be its own thing. It's not just a little bit of all three of these things. It's its own thing distinct from the, its, its origins, you could say. And one of those things is this idea called the intentions and delusions. And one of the, one of the sets that these are in, they're not necessarily binary, so to speak, but they are a way of checking in on oneself. So one of the sets of them, the pair bonds, if you will, is discipline versus expediency. The way that I essentially categorize that is your relationship to your own emotions and expediency prioritizes gratification over meaning, whereas discipline prioritizes meaning over gratification. So if somebody wants to, in essence, bypass the body, and just go straight into spirituality with something like psychedelics without acknowledging and aligning that first, then they're exuding an intention of expediency. They're trying to jump over the unpleasantness of whatever they think they're trying to solve. Whereas discipline is actually like in your definition, being a disciple, something bigger than yourself and realizing that it's there, there's an ecological connection between all of these things. And we cannot just ignore one spot and over-prioritize another. We can't just over-prioritize our spirituality while completely ignoring the vehicle that carries our spirit within it. Oh, I always look at these intentions and it, I'm really glad that you brought that up because expediency is one of the things that causes people to backtrack most when they think that they're actually accelerating and getting ahead. Yeah. I love that. And essentially it's the same thing as a bypass. So if you do an emotional bypass and you're basically you're just skipping over the pain of the shadow work and trauma through meditative practice and thinking that you're going to, you, you don't need to do that because you've had these higher mental states, but you'll never have a stage development change or shift because the shadow is still there. Same thing with the biohacking community. Biohacking is essentially a bypass mm. of doing integrated physical development, which is going to lead to optimization for performance and for life. And so we want to biohack it through taking a pill or doing some breathing exercises and whatever. And you end up with an incomplete system. And then that biohack stops working for you and you wonder what the hell happened. Yeah. And same thing with psychedelics in terms of being a spiritual bypass. The psychedelics are an experience that exists at the level of mind. True spirituality is essentially tapping into direct experience of awareness beyond mind. And you can't get there with psychedelics. You can only get a facsimile of it. Right? Interesting. Great example of what I'm talking about is a, a bunch of Americans brought some LSD down to Ramana Maharshi, a famous yogi. And because they were like very enthralled with their experiences with LSD. And Ramana Maharshi, this advanced yogi, took one dose, two doses, three doses, four, went up to eight doses and just sitting there wondering, <laughs> watching his mind. And then suddenly he goes, oh, I see because you guys want to feel important. What he was saying essentially is you're still, you're trapped in ego. Yeah. Psychedelics will trap you in ego if you mistake that mm. for true spiritual experience because it's a facsimile of it. Yeah. It's, a, it's interesting. I was interviewing Stuart Savosky. You and I both know him a couple of days ago, and he actually shared this story as well. 
that many of us think that we can get there through psychedelics or people have tried to do. And he told this exact story of what you were saying. And that Did he? Oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, he, he must've heard it from me. Uh, I've yeah, never uh, heard it. Yeah. I read I'm, it somewhere. I'm glad that he did. Yeah. <laughs> that we're hearing this for a second time on this podcast. But awesome. Yeah. It's, it, it's really fascinating to think that I'm curious if you could go more into how psychedelics trap us within the ego. Cause many, I feel like many people who use them regularly or recreationally for that matter, think that it gets them outside of their ego. They're like, oh, I had an ego death while I was on LSD or mushrooms. And I know I've always been like uh, <laughs> skeptical mm. of that term. <laughs> so I'm mm. curious what your perspective is. It can take you out of a limited story and show you a glimpse of the interconnectedness of all things. However, I got to be careful here because there are like 5-LEO-DMT, the desert toad can give you, if you are not in an awakened awareness state, a feeling of dissolution of the ego where you don't feel like you're there anymore. You are still the one watching that experience that you're relating to a God experience or unity experience. It is not the same because you always, you come back to your body and you contract back into your, identif your identification mind, your ego mind. Correct. But it can give you, it's like, a, it's like a trail marker. It's pointing to a representation of what, what that could be like if your mind were developed enough to be able to let go of mental structures and turn toward pure awareness and recognize it. Mm. So the problem is that individuals have these temporary state experiences and especially if they're not curated with a deep integration process afterwards with competent shamans slash therapists who understand this stuff, which is, are very few, especially in the West, then you tend to take that experience back. The ego then owns it as an I experience. Like I had this experience. I am spiritual. I know what it's like right. to have unity consciousness. Therefore, I must have unity consciousness. And so they become spiritually egoic around it which in itself is self-diminishing which then traps them because then they chase that experience again mistaking the temporary state experience for permanent spiritual growth when it's actually doing the opposite it's, it's getting them stuck Correct. right even with meditation bliss and just white light when people would have these advanced states of just being in pure bliss or being in white light they were considered, they are considered to be obstacles mm. to spiritual development, to the higher stages. Obstacles to spiritual yeah. development? Right, because those experiences are created by the mind. Mm. And true spiritual development is going beyond the mind. Yes. And words can't convey, that's why if you read Patanjali Yoga Sutras, there's a whole chapter in descriptive terms of different stages of samadhi, and all of that are still just purely descriptive and even the final stage of seedless samadhi is just description from the level of mind to mm -hmm. try to explain what exists in pure awareness or unity consciousness mm. because it's not describable by the human mind because it's beyond mind yes you can't describe something that an experience that doesn't exist in time and space that's right yeah words are not going to do it's that. indescribable so words can only point to it 
but the experience of bliss that can be described as bliss or experiencing the body as bliss and, and the, the experience of white light or the experience of a beautiful psychedelic expanding universe that looks like the Big Bang or contracts into the big collapse that, you know, I've heard them all and I've had them all. As you have, it's all mind stuff and it's temporary, but it can point to certain aspects, mm. right, of what the experience might be like beyond mine. Yes. But it's not that, right? In fact, beyond mine, you have no self-identity with the body whatsoever. In fact, the entire world is said to open up inside of you. Like the entire world and the world beyond time and space itself opens up inside of you. It's not something that's out there. That's fascinating. I love that for so many reasons, especially one, one of them is, as you were describing that, it made me think of Zen and how it's yeah. talked about how when you try to define Zen, you ultimately begin to dilute its meaning because it's a right. direct experience. And when you say the world opens up inside of you, what it reminds me of is something I've been working on a lot recently with myself as well as with clients is this whole idea of the obstacles, the way. I got a, a recent new understanding of what that meant when Marcus Aurelius talks about the impediment to action become uh, or advances action and the obstacle, it, it becomes the way. And when I think about that, I realize that being that we live a subjective experience as individuals with our egos and everything that we notice in the world, what determines what's important are our values, our beliefs, our emotions, our experiences of the past and how we come to see ourselves. So we never really see the world objectively, especially through the lens of ego. And thus, anything and everything that we see is a projection of something internally. So I always talk about this when it comes to setting goals. We don't just set the goal of the thing that we want. We're also calling in the obstacles that are going to show us where we're not yet liberated within ourselves. And the obstacles are going to give us that opportunity to either overcome them and express who we are through them or allow the obstacle to define us and right. then shrink back into our story. And so when people complain and they get upset, and I'm no stranger to this, I've done this countless times in the face of obstacles, we're allowing that opportunity to free ourselves to simply close up and have to wait for it to come up again or set a new goal in order to, to face that. So I, I see those parts as the challenging or the dark parts as a very crucial part of that spiritual development within ourselves, within that unity that we built. And for that reason, it's not just love and light all the time for our own development, but it's also going through the challenges, the obstacles, and developing that grit within ourselves along the way. Sure. I like that. Now, you're right. So the mind basically exists in its untrained state, it's all about desire. Desire to move away from things that it fears or that it doesn't know or that it sees as painful. And the desire to move toward things that it experiences as blissful, joyful, happy, happy. And so the problem is not that these exist. And you're right, we will project and attract in what we need, both good and bad, hmm. or what we desire, because we're attached to that. Correct. So the problem isn't that they that these things exist. The problem is that we're attached to them and that we identify because we're attached to them. We identify ourselves by the experience, by the outcomes. That's right. And so 
the, a true spiritual practice, then it's first and foremost about disentangling from the attachments and dissolving all desires. Mm. This does not mean that challenges won't arise or that peaceful, blissful situations won't also arise. It means that you won't be attached to both or either. That's right. So you just allow them. The big challenge comes and some people say, well, does that mean you don't take action? You just sit and the challenge blows over you, crushes you. No, you have to take action. In fact, the less attached you are, in fact, if you're completely non-attached, your action will be spontaneous and correct. And the Zen masters called that shibumi. Mm. spontaneous perfection. Same thing, right? The beautiful sunset or the birth of the child or holding a baby or whatever brings that temporary bliss, which always passes, just like the pain passes, your action is spontaneous and accurate. It's like my Zen monk master, martial artist would have this, he'd be the stern leading this black belt classes and second later, an instant later, black belt makes a joke <laughs> and he's just cracking up like a child in the <laughs> middle of the class because his reaction was just absolutely spontaneous that and it completely overrode the stern instructor role that he was playing yes so non-attachment which is a core tenet of yoga as well is a primary practice until mm -hmm. you've burned off all attachments and let go of all desire but that's for most that's many lifetimes yes having said that it can also be spontaneous if you were ripe so if you've been ripened over many lifetimes, going through a lot of practice, then that's why the Zen monks masters taught Satori and they used a little bamboo stick. When I sat and practiced Zen, my master Nakamura would come behind us and you do a little bow and you smack you with the bamboo stick across your shoulder and it stung like a motherfucker. Excuse my <laughs> language. But what he's, basically what he's doing is if you're ripe, if you're paying attention in that moment, then you can have a sudden instantaneous awakening. Mm. It might be temporary that then slides back into permanence to back into more permanent state of, of non-awakening, but at least that leaves a trail marker for me. Or if I'm ripe, ripe enough, because I've had plenty of temporary states of awakened awareness, I understand what it is and I've been working toward it every day in this lifetime and others, that might be the final poof, like a koan where the monk says, what was your original face before you were born and you say something ridiculous and the master knows that you've permanently shifted your state. That's right. Permanent awakened awareness state. But you can't do that if you're still attached and have all these desires. Now, this does not mean suddenly that as an awakened warrior, master, martial arts, Zen stoic warrior, that all of a sudden you're a perfect human being because the body picks up certain habits and patterns or samskaras. And those might continue. Like there's stories of enlightened masters who smoke cigarettes. My Dido, who was the head monk at Zen Mountain Monastery, we used to go train there. He chain smoked cigarettes. Hmm. Why? Because in his for former life, he was a merchant mariner. He's covered with tattoos and he smoked, his body smoked cigarettes. So even as an enlightened monk, his body still smoked cigarettes, but he wasn't attached to it. That's fascinating. I've, ne I've never looked at it that way. <laughs> but it, it makes sense. This is why you wanted to have a podcast with me. That's exactly why I wanted to have a podcast <laughs> with you, because it makes sense from the first thing that you talked about, how body-mind is actually the correct way of, of saying it. It's not body and mind, body-mind. Body mind. <laughs> That's really interesting. So for you, what have been some of the most helpful things for you to break through or release attachments? Some of them seem like they need a breaking through, and some of them we simply let go. But what have 
What has been most helpful for you on your journey? Just like everything that I've come to see that multidimensionality is very valuable because in time I've tried to attack an attachment or desire from a singular domain, like just physically mm. trying to work it through or just therapy or it's because these things have like multiple layers. That's right. Yogis would call them some scars and they're like onions. You just peel one layer and then there's another layer and you peel that and there's another layer and you peel that or the Rorschach nesting doll, the Russian nesting doll. Like, how do you get to that inner seed? It's possible to go directly to that inner seed if you have extremely competent a guide. So I think this is where psychedelics can be very useful because if you pair psychedelics with somatic work and gestalt depth therapy mm -hmm. and a practice of integration that within six months to a year, you can have, you can probably clean up a good chunk of childhood trauma samskaras. Yes. It might take longer for some people and some people might be ripe enough to have that sudden insight. So back to my, your question for me, because the body mind is this integrated thing, you have to include the body in mm -hmm. the healing process or the integration process. So somatic movement and hard crucible style events like we were talking about with Koro or seal fit like hell week i burned off a lot of shit in hell week because i was awake for six days non-stop training around the clock a lot of stuff was released from my body that i just wow didn't even know that was there so Fascinating. daily practice of uh, that's why also a martial art or daily practice of yoga is so valuable mm -hmm. daily practice of hard and soft integrated yin yang physical training with periodic crucible challenges where you try to really burn out the stuck energy. Those crucibles can be an intense uh, experience like Kokoro. It could be a silent retreat. It could be an intense yoga or martial arts retreat, or like even a black belt rank testing where you have to fight 60 black belts in a row, like I did, or hundred in a row. That's and right. you and I've been there. So, okay. Cause there's a point in time where your body just starts releasing shit and you have all, all these emotional moments and you go mm -hmm. through these roller coasters and finally you just are left absolutely bare and empty. And mm. then your fighting changes, becomes spontaneous. And that's when the, the, the quality, you know, the good instructor or master will be like, okay, Victor, you're done. Stop. Yeah. Congratulations. They're just looking for that moment. So physically though, it's important to include that type of stuff in a, a healing practice, if you want to call it that, or an integration practice. And then mentally you can't do without meditation. Meditation, is as important as eating, breathing, sleeping, and movement. It is how we train our mind. Now you could say, I train my mind. I've had a lot of people say, my meditation is swimming or biking or martial arts. And I said, no, that's not. That's <laughs> movement. And that's your mind is, con it's concentration training using movement as your object of concentration. Mm. And, uh, and so meditation is moving beyond that. We use concentration to get single point focus which is Zen boot camp, basically Zen 101 practice. But then we move beyond the concentration into mindful awareness, which is basically watching our thoughts from the level of mind. And then we move beyond mind level into the witnessing process, witnessing awareness. So that you can't do without meditation. Correct. You can't do it. And so meditation is absolutely essential complement movement practices. And then I think things that radically alter your state and story like psychedelics mm -hmm. or intense breath work, like we do these 
things called uh, breath empowerment, which is like an hour long of intense breathing. And most of your listeners now, now here we are, 2022, have done some sort of breath work. And when I started teaching this stuff back in 2006, it was really rare for me to find anyone who had done that. And you do an hour of intense, it's holotropic or rebirthing breathing. Is that the kind of breath that like Wim Hof? It's except we, it's inhale through the nose. Holotropic and Wim Hof is through the mouth. We don't like mouth breathing for obvious reasons. So when you, in, we call it the warrior breath, sharp mm -hmm. inhale through the nose, and just a soft exhale through the mouth, like a ha. And we do it intensely for 45 minutes in three sets, mm. three 15 minute sets. The whole practice is about an hour, but three 15 minute sets. And then the, at the end of each 15 minutes, we hold our breath on the inhale. Mm. And you can hold your breath for three to five minutes. You just literally go into what the yogis call the breathless state. And you have some of these extraordinary experiences. Wow. Emotional, spiritual, non-material. Non so psychedelics, breath work. There are others that you can, like Kokoro, you can have that experience in Kokoro because you're combining long periods of breath with periods of long periods of work with periods of with breath and meditation and all of, and we do it all during Kokoro. And so people have these experiences of like extended flow that last for hours in the second night. You'll experience that. Yeah. Anyway, so those are very helpful to radically shift your perspective out of your limited contracted ego story and to see that there is something much, much more going on. Yes. And in those moments, you're able to also recognize patterns in your life that are the cause of trauma. So this from psychedelics. Some people come out of a psychedelic experience and they're like, oh my God, I, I saw that this experience that I have of anger or fear is related to my mom or dad treating me this way yeah. as a very young child. I saw it. Mm -hmm. It was revealed to me in psychedelics. That's right. And so that just awareness alone, it's like they say with emotional work, just shining the light on the shadow chases the shadow away. It's just the revealing it and turning it from an I am that subject to it happened and it was that's outside of me object that then shining light on that object basically takes the energy and lets it run. Yeah. It ends Three. the object consciousness with that object that that's is right. been cast in the shadows. That's right. So NLP does this, there's other systems, EMDR, you can do this. Mm -hmm. So that brings me to that, that kind of fourth point is a really uh, effective therapy, therapeutic practice or process that is integrative, that includes imagery with some sort of somatic marker like EMDR, eye, eye movement, desensitization, reprocessing. Uh, doesn't have to be eye movement, it can be tapping or sound and or somatic work where someone's got their hands above you or on you, you know? And that can really be powerful to, to objectivize hidden trauma that's been subjectivized, yes. made part of an individual's ego. And there are certainly other ways that can be deployed or employed, but this is what's really worked for me and a com putting these things either in some sort of series or combination, almost like programming yeah. workout, you program your growth. And we actually do that in unbeatable. We call it five mountain development. So we train physically, mentally, emotionally, intuitionally, and spiritually. We drop the term spiritual and I use the term Kokoro, which is named after our event. Kokoro is another Japanese term, warrior term, that means heart and mind merged into your actions. And it's very similar to the idea of leading a spiritual life, which takes courage. And courage also means heart action, right? Because core means heart. And so acting courageously means leading with your heart, but not just sitting around and not taking action. So heart and your mind 
thoughtfully engaged in action with your hands or your feet or your some sort of or your voice right or your pen some sort of action not just sitting around obsessing about something or playing coulda shoulda woulda courageously <laughs> uh, that, that is definitely not kokoro right there <laughs> that's not kokoro yeah. it's yeah it's fascinating because i in my in the training that i had just gone through there was one portion of the training where i was actually a student not an assist because there was a certification that I hadn't obtained yet that I decided I wanted to do during that training. So I got to take off the assist hat, put on the student hat. And in that process, we did an eight hour breakthrough session with a partner. So one of us would go on one day, the other one would go on the following day. And I was doing my, I was redoing my values around business and career. And I'd never, I had heard of the, I had heard the word Kokoro before, but I never used it in association to myself. I always heard it and be like, oh, that, I like that. Like I heard it in your book, love it, love the concept of it. But what was interesting is upon, through that transformation of that session, my number one value to myself became Kokoro. Sweet. I, I realized there was a collapse of other values that I had saw in myself, like creativity and impact and congruency, and they all collapsed into Kokoro. And that was the only word that encapsulated exactly what I was actually wanting yeah, yeah. to express in that. I and love it, that. And this is like the idea of polarities, right? So you can particularize and break different concepts into polarities like you did earlier. And you said on, on one side is discipline and the other side is expediency. That's a polarity. Ultimately, and so you can break a lot of things into that type of polarity. So courage and rashness is another example. Or boldness and rashness is an example. And in the middle is courage. So that's another polarity. But ultimately, all of these collapse, like you said, into a meta principle. Meta principle is actually love. Yes. So at the highest end of love, you have absolute cosmic consciousness love and it's not an opposite but at the other end of the love scale you have absence of love which is darkness yes so the absence of love is darkness it's not fear it's not anger it's just no love and so in darkness you have less light less love penetrating the material therefore the actions are going to have a dark energy to them this is where you get war yeah. violence it's in the absence of love the absence of love. So that's the, everything fits into love on that scale eventually. And the work of Dr. David Hawkins basically proved that his scale of consciousness at the book. highest end. Yeah, that highest was end was just universal love that embodied by Buddha or Jesus. The lowest end was shame embodied by the most depraved human beings, which is why shame is used for torture and humiliation. That's right. It's fascinating because you talked about this idea of shining light on what's in the shadows within yourself. And it's as if keeping them in the shadows is almost an act, an expression of shame. Like when we keep those things inside, that's what gives them all their power over us right. and over our identity. And so yeah, having- the shame leads to fear of exposure to yourself or others, which then leads to guilt, which then leads to anxiety, which then is expressed as anger or timidity, all of it just on that scale that's below courage and courage is that demarcation line where once you step into courage, now you're bringing positive energy, turning backward, looking at, which dissolves the anxiety, dissolves the timidity, dissolves the That's right. <laughs> dissolves the guilt, dissolves the fear, and then releases the shame. Yeah. And then you can move on into acceptance and, and love. Yeah, I really resonate with this multi-layered approach to our attachments. And it, 
because I don't feel like it is just one thing. And one of the reasons why I do the interview segment of this podcast and the way that I do it is because I think about the way to liberation is not just through one school of thought. It's not just through one method. It's bringing all of these different angles or different ways of doing things, whether it's physically, emotionally, mentally with Kokoro and looking at it from all these angles. So I always talk about how Zen Stoic is not the way it just points to liberation. We have almost 8 billion people on this planet, right? Then there's 8 billion ways. Yeah. (laughs) Every single individual has a unique path. Now you can take, if you have a wise system that is flexible and open and non, not like rigidly prescriptive, like Westerners, we love rigidly prescriptive paths. This is why they don't work for many people and people Mm. spin out. And if they stick with it, they get distortions because every individual needs a path or a way that is customized. This is why the role of the guru past the Eastern system is so important because they could help an individual understand what, you know, where their body mind was at and where their psychic blocks were at or their shadow. And they could design training and preparatory work and different practices to meet the individual where they're at. And then to help them evolve the practices as they grow, grew and broke, broke free of blockages and attain new experience. And that's a very rare thing to see. That's what we tried to do with unbeatable uh, mind is to create a system that was flexible and living so that it can meet each individual where they're at. And then the coaches would be adept enough to help individuals kind of mold the training or provide the insight to the individual so they can mold their training based upon what their needs were. And those needs are going to be different at different times of life, different seasons. If injury comes up, obviously, just like physical training, you you got to adapt the training program. You don't just keep on doing your kind yeah. of max your PR out if you're deadlift, if, you're, if your back is injured. That's right. Well, the same thing Work with, to the pain and then pivot. Don't right. Me. Same thing with your developmental plan. You could be working on your five mountain integrated development and you're having some great experiences with your spiritual and your openness and everything, but you just keep getting stuck because you have this samskara emotional pattern from childhood abuse. And you've got to literally just stop and address that in order to move forward. Yes. Otherwise it's just going to get worse and worse. Right. Mm-hmm. This is why Ken Wilber is one of my mentors said for years, he was saying, wake up, grow up and clean up and wake up meant wake up to your story and wake up to this awakened awareness experience that you are this spiritual being having this human existence. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's great. Now you've got to grow up. Humans go through all these stages of development and ego development and how we see the world, our perspective and the three dominant ones are pre-conventional, post-conventional mm-hmm. or egocentric, ethnocentric, world-centric. And so you have to grow up through these stages of development and then you can show up, right? And you show up with presence, with authenticity, with compassion. You show up as a whole human being in service. Years later, just a few years ago, he finally said, you know what? I missed something really Mm. important. You also have to clean up. (laughs) (laughs) You have to clean up your past. You have to clean up your traumas. Yeah. Same thing with the founder of mindfulness. John Kabat-Zinn wrote a book. Just a few years ago, they said, ah, after enlightenment, take out the trash. And he says, what he was talking about is you can have all the, uh, you know, let me just describe it this way. And I love saying this because it's funny, but one of my meditation teachers, we were talking about that said, yeah, if, if you are an asshole and you meditate for 20 years, you're likely just to be more focused asshole. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's You're so saying true. the same thing, right? <laughs> of course. You can have great experiences meditation, but if you don't do the cleaning up of your shadow, you're still going to be an asshole. That's right. <laughs> or you're still going to sleep with your students as a master yogi, which, you know, God, seen all over the world of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I like, I believe it was Sadhguru who talked about this idea of limited identity. Like you can have all the intelligence in the world and it's incredibly dangerous in the hands of one, a person with a limited identity, a limited view. I, of I love that. Sadhguru yeah. is awesome. And I love his name. It just means the inner guru. Yeah. <laughs> the ultimate guru is your inner self, your higher self, your spiritual self. This is also why meditation is so important because if you don't meditate, you don't, you're basically saying, I'm not taking time to nurture mm. my spirit and to listen to my spirit. Yes. So you become this kind of ego wrecking ball out in the world. That's a great point. <laughs> Everyone <laughs> listening is going, God, I, I, now I really need to go. Now that I'm hearing it like this, <laughs> I feel like that, but that's important, right? People need to hear things in different ways, right? There's, if there's 8 billion ways, the finger pointing at the moon is not the moon, right? <laughs> Just, that's right. It's not. We're all pointing to the same thing, but I think that that's a really key point around meditation is the taking the time to give that to yourself every single day. And once you do it and you experience the stillness, mm -hmm. there's no going back. That's right. right. Once you get fit and you go through the early crucible of just burning off the lethargy and the old patterns of not exercising every day, it becomes so joyful and, and you just can't imagine. I don't know if you're like this, but I can't go a day without exercise. Or if I go a day without exercise, I'm like, all right, man, I got to get, I got to get moving my body. You I'm know very what I mean? similar to that. If it's not like a full on exercise, it's some kind of movement or some strength. sort of movement just to get, yeah. it, feel whole, feel integrated, get all the gears turning in the right order, et cetera, et cetera. And I couldn't imagine going more than a few days without being in my hard, hard exercise routine or whatever. It's not hard for me. It's fun, but uh, yeah, it's just part of yeah. Me. So meditations like that, right? Mm -hmm. Once you experience the, the stillness and the quietude and you start to really um, understand the importance of it, then mm -hmm. you just don't not do it. Yeah. That's really interesting. I'm very curious about seal fit and how it works because I know it's a combination of multiple different disciplines blended or braided into one. And I'm, I asked for my own purposes because I, I am very interested in learning about it for myself, but also for anybody listening, like who is the right type of candidate for seal fit and what can it do for them? Seal fit is inclusive of unbeatable. Unbeatable is our integrated vertical development coached program, right? And so we have boat crews and we put people together in these year long peer group boat crews. We call them processes where we develop a five mountain training plan, as mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier. And we have monthly meetings and you get one-on-one -on -one coaching and we have these train integrated training events. So that's how we, so that's part of seal fit, but that's our unbeatable um, boat crew coaching program. You can also just come to an event at seal fit, but we prefer that you're involved. You go to those events as part of your training plan Yes, that you're getting coached for, but we haven't required it because we want seal fit also to be accessible to special operates candidates and athletes who really may have a path that working for them, but they just want to use the seal fit events as part of their crucible experience to accelerate their growth or integrate. So you can still come to a seal fit event and we have a number of them now, but we're going to be integrating them into these like these integrated training events in the future where there'll be like four or five days 
where you'll have functional fitness, you'll have the unbeatable mind, the mental development skills, you'll have sheepdog intuition awareness skills, which is like tactical shooting and self-defense and whatnot. And these are all like built in this kind of integrated crawl, walk, run fashion, and then ending with our crucibles. We have six, 12, 24, and 50 hour nonstop physical, mental, emotional team training. That's what we call a crucible. Kokoro yeah. is the 50 hour. That's right. So you can come to just the crucible or you can right now you can come to the, one of these other events, but they will be integrated. I think in 2023 is what we're looking at doing. Mm. Awesome, man. And, well, and you I, can I, find I, more information at sealfit.com for those. And also unbeatablemind.com for the, the coaching program. Yeah. It's pretty definitely. cool. It's very effective. Like for our special <laughs> operators, Navy SEAL candidates, nine, 90% make it through SEAL training. I remember reading that on the website is that yeah. like this program alone has helped drastically increase the pass rate for candidates, which is. Yeah. Cause the quality of candidates is so much higher when they go through seal fit training. Cause they understand mm -hmm. how to control their arousal response through breath work, through box breathing, which I created back in 2006 for special operators. I do love um, that technique. And I thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. It's, not, it's, simple, it's, it's <laughs> eminently simple. It's extremely effective and it just makes you a better person if you practice That's it. So right. the candidates understand what hell week is like. And it's actually, cause Kokoro is actually harder than the first two days of hell week. Now hell week is harder because it's six days. Most people quit in the first 50 hours of hell week. And so we simulate that, but we give you the skills to be able to navigate. That's right. So, so seals come back after hell week or seal tr trainees come back after hell week with the seals. And they say, you know what? Hell week was easy for me because of Kokoro camp. That's right. And, and that plus they get mentorship by SEAL. Now, some of our SEAL fit coaches are actual SEAL instructors. So there's all this multidimensionality. It's not just coming to an event. You come, to, you train for the event. You understand, you develop all the durability. A lot of them use the SEAL fit operator workouts, which are training basically for combat. And you can get these mentorship and you're training with other spec ops candidates and sharing ideas and do that for six months to a year and then go to BUDS. You're just so much more prepared than someone who just goes to a recruiter in Wisconsin <laughs> and says, I want to be a Navy SEAL. And they can pass the test. And yeah. that's either a boot camp and they're at BUDS and they're standing next to a guy who's SEAL fit trained. There's no comparison. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. It seems like just the training itself for Kokoro through the SEAL fit system is in and of itself, Kokoro sounds like an extremely transformative experience because it essentially breaks down all the stories that you have about yourself in the process of going through this 50 hours. But it seems like even just the training itself is incredibly transformational before somebody even gets to that point of going to Kokoro. Yeah, we consider Kokoro to really be just a center post of an experience. Mm. Let's just call it maybe a year long experience. You got six months of training and preparation, hopefully with a teammate like you're going to do with Scott mm -hmm. or, or with a small training team. And we put people together into these, into these little training boat crews, they're virtual and they have their prescribed certain training evolutions and challenges. And we provide them all the support. And then they show up and do Kokoro. And now after Kokoro, they've got this intense relationship with their teammates who have, who they've met at Kokoro and hopefully the ones that they've trained with to get there. And they've got a connection with the SEAL fit coaches who are all former special operators that they can then rely on for mentorship and integration and all the learning that comes after Kokoro. Yes. Kokoro is the gift that keeps on giving. I have people email me eight, 10, 12 years after Kokoro telling me they're still learning from that event. Yeah. And they're still using the lessons to, to guide their life and to improve their lives every day. Yeah. I get chills hearing that.
<laughs> I'm like, I'm freaking. Say, there's life before Kokoro, and there's life after. It's That's different. Right. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm very much. I can't wait to see you there, Victor. It's oh gonna yeah, be awesome. It's going to be amazing, and I'm even just. I'm stoked for just the training itself because it sounds incredible. Just the smoke that you put into this, and what you get to learn about yourself, and what you're actually capable of, even just through the training up to the event. I'm pumped for all of it, man, and I'm really excited to be a part of that. So, I have a final question that I like to ask at the end before we wrap up, as the Zen Stoic is all about liberation and living a liberated life. And sometimes that goes outside of the box of Zen and Stoicism or NLP. So I'm curious from you, Mark, what does it mean to you to live a liberated life? I think the highest human drive is freedom. And so what does that mean? Freedom to live your calling as the most complete human being possible. So in order to do that, there's some fundamental things we need to do. We need to free our body from pain and, and weakness. We need to free our mind from being trapped in patterns and the training and culturization of our society, which is really to keep people dependent and victimized and addicted. Yeah. So that they can be good consumers <laughs> and violent. So they consume news and are always in a state of fear. And this has all been a grand plan. It's a big scheme to keep the masses in a state of need for other interests. So do you have to free yourself from all that? You do that through meditation, through uh, all the work that we've talked about here. And as you begin to experience freedom from any physical needs, physical body, because your physical pain, because you're strong, you're sleeping well, you're eating well, your body is harmonious and it's going to live for a very long time until you don't need it anymore. And then you free yourself from anyone else's control and you're living absolutely liberated and autonomously. As a human being, you recognize and you give up these attachments and addictions and you free yourself from all desires and you recognize that life is extraordinarily simple and beautiful. You become really present and joyful and compassionate and open-hearted and your needs become very limited, right? And so this is where you may have all the abundance, but you just let it, you just let it flow through you and let other people experience and enjoy it. You could be, you could be a beneficent, benevolent billionaire but you're going to die with, with zero in the bank because you don't want to give it all away. And that's true freedom. You're not trapped by the energy of your accomplishments, your pedigrees, your certificates, your titles, your roles, or your material possessions. None of that means anything to you. And at the last moment of your life, freedom means that you're absolutely healthy, whole. It's your time. You have zero regrets. And you just turn the lights off yourself. That's the way I want to go. That's beautiful. I love that answer so much. Mark, thank you so much for being on the show with me today. This has been an awesome conversation. Yeah, it's been a great time, Victor. Thanks so much, buddy. Awesome, man. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It is my mission to help as many people as possible to live a liberated life with unshakable inner peace through the content on this podcast. Subscribe to this channel with notifications on to be notified daily whenever we share a new episode. 